0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and I am super thrilled to have Mark Cohen joining us from Guernsey. Did I get that right, Mark? You did get
1: that right. That was
0: perfect. Guernsey. Until I met you, I actually didn't even know that place existed, but it does, and I would love to kind of start there, right? What are you doing in Guernsey and where is it? And tell us about what... How your career brought you to Guernsey.
1: Um, so I'll I'll start early and then come back to and let Guernsey feed into that. A long time ago, I was a maths undergraduate at Cambridge. I went into the financial markets in the UK. I was an interest rate tr- an interest rate swap trader at banks for seven years, uh, and then in 2001 I quit to do a masters in AI, and that's sort of what's now known as the AI winter. There were very few courses around. I called up Cambridge and said do you have a master's in AI? And they said, no, and maybe they just didn't want to see me again. I wouldn't rule, rule that out. I maybe wasn't the hardest working student when I was was there. Um, but I asked them, you know, where are the good places to go? And one of those good places was Sussex University in Brighton. Uh, and I went there and I did a fantastic course that turned out to be run by one of Jeffrey Hinton's mentors, though I didn't know that at the time. Met my wife who was doing her undergraduate. So I hung around until she'd finished Went back into financial markets, um, joined a small proprietary trading group, and built the systematic trading side of that up from scratch to become most of that business. I've been doing a side project in poker and AI. I brought my friend I was doing that with into the trading business, and we actually built the fully AI version of that trading system. Uh, and the last eight years of that, I did working from working remotely from Lugano in the Italian-speaking part mm. of Switzerland. And when that stopped, we had to figure out, like, where are we going to go next? We didn't want to move back to the UK, which is where we're from originally. Uh, But we obviously had family in the UK, knew we wanted to do something in business and needed to be in a reasonable-sized business community near the UK, English-speaking, and with, like, good schools because we'd had problems with the schooling in Lugano. So I've got four boys uh, and so we ended up moving here to Guernsey. There weren't many options left, actually, by the time you'd would uh, you done all those things. And Guernsey is a small island in the English Channel between the UK France. and mm-hmm. France. We're wow. slightly nearer to France with a population of only 64,000 people. Wow. People. So, and you would say, yeah, would you pick that as a how... business-friendly
0: uh, culture? And like, uh, is this, or is it more of a vacation place?
1: No, it's a very business-friendly culture. Actually, a lot of venture capital funds are the administration is done from here, uh, which is not necessarily the most exciting business, but lots of VCs that you may have heard of actually have their funds technically come out of Guernsey. Gotcha. So it is very business-friendly, and there's actually quite a nice business community gotcha. here.
0: So, so Mark, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on this pod was the brilliant conversation we had a couple of weeks ago um, after the first time I ever got to meet you at the virtual judging panel event, I mean, the virtual demo day, uh, ran by, um, the NanoFund guys, right? Shout out Igor and team, uh, the parallax team where you and I were, you know, on the judging panel, I thought your questions were super thoughtful to the founders, you know, who were building the startups and pitching them and I really did some research about you and founded about, um, unbundled VC, your current firm, and we had that great one-on-one, and one thing that stood out for me, and sort of kind of parallels into why you're here and why I've been loving your journey, is you're such a fierce um, an open venture capitalist in the in the public realm, you know and I think that's a refreshing. I said this to you last time when, I, when we talked, such a refreshing thing to watch because venture capital industry, generally that whole sector is you know, predominantly secret, sec, you know, worship secrecy and like it's all about like not sharing the deals. And it's like, I don't think building public is their default mantra. I know it's changing. And I love that you're one of the few who's uh, embracing the change or leading the change for, for that matter. And so I'm curious to start there about what made you build in public as a, as a venture capitalist? Like what gave you the motivation?
1: so it's a couple of things the main thing is that i'm small right i'm small fry in the industry and i'm smaller than a small vc the amount of money i've got to put to work while it's meaningful for me and enough for me to do this full time is still very small for the industry so i'm effectively a tiny challenge brand in a large incumbent industry and i have to figure out how the hell is anyone going to even notice like, so you're like an indie band in the world
0: with like the Beatles and the Coldplay and the U2. You're like a little, you know, yeah. Yeah, that,
1: that kind of thing. Like any, you know, or you're the startup against yeah. IBM or whatever it is. How do you yeah. get how do you get noticed when you're that little guy? You know, the same thing as a founder is trying to do when they're building their business and there's an incumbent and they're like, how do I get recognized? Uh, and the one of the ways that I figured out that I would do this is I would just talk very publicly about sort of kind of, everything that I was doing on LinkedIn because I'd already built something of a network there just because I was at my previous place I was the sort of front face for the first pitches Um, and it just seemed like a really natural extension that people would notice that I existed Uh, and I think I mentioned this when we spoke last time was I was chatting with a founder that I'm very close with about this and he's like oh you're going to build in public and I was like what what's that Uh, And he's like, oh, you're building in public. And I went and did some Googling. And it was probably one of those phrases that had sort of wafted past me five or six times in my life without me ever really paying that much attention. And I was like, oh, yeah, Googled it. That is kind of what I'm planning to do. Uh, And it was helpful because it reinforced that this wasn't just some like crazy thing that I was doing. There were some like solid reasons for it. Um, but you're right, no one's ever done it in VC, or it's, it's very rare, I think, I haven't seen it before in VC. And I think what you see there is what you would call a classic sort of innovator's dilemma, right? You've got an incumbent where it's fine for me to go talk about all the things that I'm doing because, you know, if I get to the point where my secret sauce and my deal flow is so desirable that people want to copy what I'm doing, I'm in a wonderful position. But let's not worry about that today. But for all the incumbents, if they've got all that great deal flow and they've got this is how we do things, they are worried that someone maybe is going to go and copy them. And they do need to go to their LPs and say, hey, look, we do this magical thing that nobody else does. And that's a difficult conversation if you've gone and told everyone exactly what it is that you're doing. So, so it's, it's, you know, it is almost the classic innovators dilemma where they cannot do it but you kind of have to do it if you want to do have it, a shot
0: stand out. Right? I love that. I love that. And, and also I'm sure you're self-aware that you're approaching this whole thing like a founder, you know, and that's one thing that I noticed about you is that you're such a founder DNA. You know, when I first talked to you, I was almost surprised that you were actually a solo GP. Cause I was like, you know, this, he, I felt like we were, I was talking to another founder, you know, the DNA was so there. Right. And so this awareness around marketing and how do I cut through the noise and how do I, stay relevant you know i think it's such a again a founder mindset you know which i think a lot of vcs and a lot of investors genuinely i don't think that they think um 24 7 like a founder they serve and help founders but they're i feel like they think more like traditional institutions you know that's what generally again this is like me generalizing some things here but so that's why you were like a little renegade brand that i thought was fun to to follow along and bring you on the pod and like now 40,000 more people get to see and hear about Mark. Um, so tell us about Unbundled VC Mark. Like I'm curious, what was the sort of genesis for you to you know, start your own solo font, number one? Number two, why is it called Unbundled?
1: So the first thing was I was at a small VC before and I just felt that I could do it better myself. Um, and actually all the things that we, could, we were just talking about Again, even at a small VC, you just can't go do those within another brand. There are actually sometimes quite good reasons not to do them. Plus, you then need to go and get the buy-in of all the other people, right? So, And people aren't necessarily going to think the same way that you do. And time will tell whether whether I'm proven right or not. So I was like, this is a thing that I can only do on my own. The brand unbundled. So I know you're familiar with what unbundling is. You often have industries that contain many different parts and you don't really think of them as separate parts but actually they do 10 things or they do 20 different things it's as much as anything a reminder to me that there are many different ways that this journey could lead me because there are lots of parts to VC and it's possible yes there are the more traditional paths but actually any of those paths could end up being an interesting one
0: When I think about Unbundling the things. I mean, the traditional things that come to mind are like, you know, there's these articles around, you know, the, the great unbundling of Reddit, right? The sub Reddit and the niche communities. I think that's a huge trend. Has been happening for a while. Also, the great unbundling of Craigslist um, has been has been catnip for investors for a while, as you, know, I'm sure you know. And when I when I worked at OnDeck, um, the the phrase was the great unbundling of the university. Um, and that's you yeah know, one of the sort of north stars for ON was about how do you take parts of the universities and re-engineer them, reimagine them in twenty first two thousand twenty three essentially. Um, so I'm fully fully aware. I love I love the way you thought about it, and I'm curious. Do you believe that the the great unbundling of the VC needs to happen? And you think do you think that you're doing some some version of that? To a certain extent, right? Because I am being
1: public about my deal flow when I have the permission of of founders uh, and so to a certain extent then it's a actually you can go and look at that and go look at that business and see um if uh, if you want to go and call them and I've, I've we've had some instances of that because I just post every day I've had a number of founders come back to me and go actually I've had inbound for investment and I've had inbound for my product just because of that and I love that right it's a beautiful serendipitous thing that for something that I'm doing for, to a certain extent, somewhat selfish yeah. reasons, right? Because I want people to be interested in my journey. Actually, is still leading to some nice outcomes for other people as well. And so, there, to, to a certain extent, by doing all those things separately and being publicly about, a public about them. If any of those things particularly end up being useful, they could end up unbundling and becoming a piece and becoming a potentially becoming a business on its own. Do I think VC is going to get unbundled? I think that is very hard to say. There's such a tight ecosystem between sort of LPs and GPs and how everything is structured. I think that's quite hard. Um, it would be such a change that I think it's definitely tricky do i think there's things that people can do better and do i want to be at the forefront of that hell yes
0: yeah my you know i'm not super deep in this sector as much as you are but i'm a mini angel investor i've written like nine checks in the last two years um a lot more selective now because of the market and just you know where i am right now but my assessment um mark has been that there's only two Kinds of players that I feel like will win in the next 20 years, 30 years span as, as a venture capital allocator, if you will. One is the ones who already have a great brand, like the Sequoia's of the world. It's kind of like the barbell strategy or barbell metaphor that comes to mind. One end is this Sequoia, the founders fund, A16Z, because they just have that brand. And unless they do something that completely destroys the reputation, I think they will be around for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, Plus, they just had a nice like Sequoia had a great win with Airbnb two years ago with the IPO. That's a lot of money go back into the ecosystem, so that's great. So I feel like that they will continue to win both the deal flow but also great outcomes. At the same time, on the other end of this barbell, I feel like individual renegade brands of of people who get 2023's sort of pulse in the sense that now. Startups and founders are looking for VCs who can relate to what they're going through, who can help them with some, you know, um, marketing help, building public help, distribution help. Right. Get them those 20 new leads this quarter or something like that, as opposed to just like bankers and staying back and only looking at spreadsheets, you know, Um, by by way of you being on this podcast. And I've seen you've been on a bunch of podcasts. I feel like you are aware of the power of podcasting so when you talk to another founder who's about to have a big launch three months down the line you're like hey john you should go on a podcast tour go talk to kp because he has community building niche whatever and you're building a community product maybe there's a nice synergy let me make an intro to you and suddenly this john is on building public podcasts and now his product launch gets 10x bigger attention than it would have so i think knowing sort of what 2023's pulse is and like what the modern way of marketing and distribution are, I think are massive superpowers that I think renegade brands like you or like challenger brands like you will stand out. So so what I'm trying to get to is that the middle will be crushed. So if you're if you are not a Sequoia and if you have, I don't know, like a hundred million dollar fund, I think it's going to be very challenging for you to operate um, in terms of deal flow unless you do this, you know, you go to the other spectrum where you're, what i was saying like you you you're like mark or you're like you know someone who is um super super founder friendly and understands the 2023 landscape
1: so i, I couldn't agree more and, and i think i didn't say that as one of my motivations but it was that typically all industries as they mature the at some point they because you know there's thousands of players yeah. right in vc at some point, industries mature there are a few big players at the top and then there can be quite a number of niche players because they have specific brands and specific reputations for that. But there's, and there may be more of those than there are of the large players. But there still are not going to be, potentially, are not going to be as many people around as there were, you know, as there are right now. And, and maybe what's happened in the last couple of years, you know, is going to accelerate that. And I think I saw where I was before that there was a risk that we weren't aware yeah. of that. Uh, and I needed to go, how do I get myself in a position where not just today I can do well, but where I can still be doing well in five years time, in 10 years time, in 20 years time, in whatever I'm thing. And I actually do need to do something different in order to achieve that.
0: And all all that you're doing now in the long scheme of things, which I've seen personally with my Twitter, when I started at 414 followers in 2018, if you just play the game long enough, and now I'm at 45,000, I didn't do anything, I think, that's outrageous on Twitter. that I don't remember, like, you know, doing, like, anything that's, like, a growth hack. I just persisted the longest um, compared to many people who started with me. I think, more importantly, at every turn, I asked myself, how can I add value? I think, which is a very fair question. I'm sure you feel that. How can I add value? What can I do differently today and all that? But at the same time, we just pure compound interest mark it's just brilliant and when you think about that from a i know this in theory or i know this like you know when i went to college i heard about compound interest about money and that's why we have the 401k accounts and all that but like thinking about compound interest of content is i think highly 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 underrated most people don't think of it that way and most people don't play the 10-year game on content but if you do that really that's the answer you will have a personal monopoly on a particular niche or a particular channel, either podcasting or it's a Twitter or LinkedIn, or whatever. And you will be the top 10% or 1% in that particular niche. And it's just so achievable. And I wish more people took shots on that, you know? It takes time, but you're gonna spend the time anyway. I
1: mean, I, I felt, yeah, well, I felt like I kind of didn't have yeah. any other options and it just made perfect sense, right? And it's like, I'm gonna do this on day one it may well be a grind and take a while before it actually, you know, gets going. And actually Twitter I've been starting to zero from zero and I'm still only just over three hundred followers. That's fine. It's a grind. I already had over two thousand people on LinkedIn, so that's been less nice. of a grind. But and it's been growing. And you're close to five thousand on LinkedIn, I think I saw,
0: right? You're close to four thousand
1: nine hundred very Very... Very, very close, and I could easily go over because I've got like six, seven hundred connection <laughs> requests in my inbox. But I actually only connect with people when I've yeah. actually right. had some sort of connection. So, um, but Twitter, I know is going to be yeah. a grind, right? And that's fine. And I know yeah. it's day one, and it takes, and it takes time. But I just, like you say, you just have to be there every day. Now that doesn't guarantee you success, but you certainly aren't going to get success unless you're yeah, there
0: every day right it's important the default i mean the, i mean so that's the baseline you got to be there so actually let's switch gears to one question i had about bip content uh, one um style of you know content that i've seen you create on linkedin which i love is the recap of today right yeah, i think you do a hashtag today and then you put four or five bullet points i know 99.9% i'm going to be mentioned in your in your today's update on your linkedin later after this after this podcast um which i'm completely happy with as you know like i love that um so i loved it i love the fact that you take something mundane as ordinary as like hey uh, i just had a meeting which a bunch of people have a bunch of meetings every day it's not groundbreaking but you document them every day with four or five bullet points i think of course by asking permission i love that idea how did you come up about that and second what are some other experiments you're running so- on on this theme
1: so I didn't do it on day one. I was just like, I'm going to post at least once a day something. And I think just one day I posted about a few things that I'd done. And then the next day it was like, oh, it's just way easier if I just do this. And just went like that. And and pe- I had a few messages, like private messages going, I don't really know why, but I really like those. Me too. Like they didn't understand it either, but I really like those Remember I told posts. you that in our last meeting. So I said, I
0: love those. Yeah.
1: And so it's 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 a bit weird, because I don't quite, people do seem to like them. It's the easiest post anyone can write. You literally, you go through your list of meet, you make sure you've got permission right. ahead of time, right? So when I send out my Calendly, it's in the questions. Please tell me if you, if you don't want me to do that. Um, and you literally just list who you met and what company they're from. And if you've had a quiet day, go through your emails and look for like two or three things that you did just to like, pad it out if you like because you always did a lot of things it's just not always meetings right so it's just kind of fill those those gaps in now, honestly it's the quickest easiest post that anybody could write so it was almost by accident i was just like hey these are some things i've done today and then it was like i'll try that and people started messaging me going yeah and so i was like okay people like it you stick with it right and so i mean i think i wrote a few days ago about And this is still something that I'm learning, right? I'm learning all the time. You talked about that founder mentality. I will back myself as one of the fastest learners Mm -hmm. out there. I'm learning from founders. I talk to like founders every day and I'm trying to learn from every single one of them. So, you know what? Two, three years ago, maybe I couldn't do what I'm doing today, but I'm listening and I'm trying to learn. So... And I posted so I posted a few days ago about these things called, like, two-way doors and one-way mm. doors, right? Which are, you may well be familiar with. So a two-way door oh, decision yeah. is one mm. where, right?
0: Well, yeah, well, you know this, right? You try it if it, it doesn't yeah, yeah.
1: work. So a two-way door decision is one if you try it and it doesn't work, you can just reverse it, right? You can come back through that door. And those decisions you just should, like, try as many things as possible. If you've got a business, it's completely fine to delegate those decisions without worrying about it too much because you can change your mind right. afterwards right and so almost everything that i do is a <laughs> two way door decision right so i can try these things and if they don't work i'm about to launch like just a monthly newsletter if no one's interested that's fine i'll right. stop it right uh right. like run as many experiments as you can it's exactly the same as with founders like where you go right do as many iterations right run right. as many pricing experiments all these kinds of things that you can do where you're like go, just find it until you get there. And you find what's the closest thing? What is that thing that right. people want? Right? And so it's exactly that and, same mindset, try
0: as many things as the, possible. The, the weird thing is, it's almost almost impossible to predict or gauge what is that will resonate a lot before you do it anyway, you know, it's like, nobody, I think has the magic wand where they could just say, you know what, I know exactly this piece of content will resonate. So this whole thing about today, recap thing we're talking about, right? I feel like unless you did it for a couple of days, I didn't even know that thing um, existed. And so by the time I got to see it, I think you might have done it like 30 times already. And so and then I gave you this qualitative, you know, sort of avalanche of feedback saying, oh my God, Mark, that's, I love it. Because I think of you, anytime I think of an update like that, I'm like, that's Mark style, right? You've almost signaturized it. But you wouldn't know that until you try it, you know? So you have to go through a lot of um, initial dumb experiments until you get the one that resonates and people say, you know what, that's what you should be doing more of. Totally.
1: And day one, yes. I did not know I was going to be doing posts that, that looked like that. If someone had said, Oh, you're going to do those posts, I'd be like, right. really? And people are going to like them? I'd be like, really? Are you sure? That's that's, that's weird. weird.
0: And so this happens all the time and across all platforms, Mark, I mean, I've seen this at Twitter, where some of my best performing threads have been surprising and accidents, you know, I'm like, the ones that where I put a lot of effort and a lot of thought and a lot of like intentionality sometimes bomb. And so, I mean, this, this, I was reading about Jeff Bezos you know, um, uh, I think it was a note or some kind of an essay earlier. And it was something about how failure and innovation are conjoined twins or something. Basically he was trying to say like, Amazon should have the culture of failure that no other company can ever dare to have because a lot of big companies want to have failure. But the price that you have to pay is that you will look dumb or you will have to be embarrassed or you will have, you will have some, you know, outcomes that you're not happy with, you know. And he, he was trying to reinforce to the team saying, like, that is okay because that is our culture. And please make these mistakes. Please make these experiments and failures. Otherwise, we'll never get out of the innovator's dilemma, you know, like you were saying earlier. And I think um, often a lot of people who want to get into the game of building in public or growing their Twitter, going their... LinkedIn, podcasting, whatever, they want to do experiments, but they're afraid of the consequences. But they're all two-way doors. I think to me, what what surprises me is like, it's not going to impact you as much as you think it does.
1: Yeah, I think the like the one thing i did do was i literally i was like i am going to post every day and i'm going to post at least yeah. once every day working days weekends right. i don't post actually i give myself um, i do work at weekends but i give myself like this is going to yeah. be family time as well uh, but i don't post but i was like i am just yeah. i have to what time uh, do you post a, is there a particular time
0: in the calendar you have a block do you just use that as a block That's...
1: i i typically try and post sometime in the mornings so this is uk time between seven and nine. Uh, I find if I post, so just some small hacks here, like if you post too early, what happens is there's no one watching, and this is what it appears to me. I do not know how the LinkedIn algorithm works. What it looks like is if you post too early, then nobody sees it and then link, because my network isn't around. And then LinkedIn thinks this isn't a popular piece of content and it can take a long time to to catch back up again. and obviously before 9 o'clock is kind of just before people are getting into work and they or maybe they get in a bit early or they've just got out of bed or they're getting ready and they, they flick up LinkedIn. So that 7 till 9 seems to be the the sweet spot. And then I typically post, like at the end of the day, the today I post, as we said, I'm going to be a bit late on it today, but I think the sweet spot for that is actually around sort of four four thirty, four forty, because people are finishing at 5.00 Actually, you want to sometimes people sneak out a little bit early, or they're you know, it's the end of their day. I'll just go look at this, I don't have much time, and that's the point. And if you post too early, it's a bit weird, right? Because it's meant to be what I did today. Uh, but if what's you post, the, like what's the, week, what's say, the we, morning
0: post called? Is there a theme for that, or you just choose some, something comes to mind?
1: It's just whatever comes to mind, and I have a post list in my notes list of things that I'm interested in, but then sometimes it's just whatever yeah. is on my mind that day. I very rarely actually write the post yeah. ahead of time. I have a list of things I might be interested in, and then sometimes it's something completely different. Um, if I've done a podcast recently, that's quite interesting because I can take, like, worst case, I can go, you asked me, like, 20 different questions. I could turn each of those if I wanted to. That could yeah. be my post for the yeah, next four 100%. weeks, right? It'd be The 20 questions you asked me and a pithy version uh, rather than the long-winded one that you're getting of uh, of all my answers. And so it's more... Something that's on my mind, and it can be about investing, about running a business, it can or it can be completely random, like the one that we were talking about um, just a few moments ago before we started the podcast. And then the end of the day is always that today I. And then occasionally there's a bonus post in the middle of the day if if something has happened, right? One of my companies something's happened, or an investment went public. Those they kinds have a of launch
0: things. or something, yeah. So tell me about. For unbundled VC, tell me about the kind of founders you want to attract, Mark. What are some traits you look for, especially from founders? And then we're going to go into the kind of businesses slash sectors that you want to uh, attract.
1: So the founders that I am looking for, I'm looking for three key skills. I'm looking for sales because they have to be able to sell the product to people like me, to investors. They have to be able to sell actually the product. Um, and they have to be able to persuade people to come and work for them who shouldn't really want to come and work for them. The best people, you know, have choices of where they go to work, and it makes a huge difference if they're going to want to come work for you or if they're going to want to go work for someone else. So sales is like a super critical skill. I think only if there's more than one founder, I think only one founder needs Mm -hmm. to have it. You don't need it in all of them, but it's possibly the single most essential skill. The other skills I'm looking for are, what I would call decision making skill which is quite hard to figure out so when someone pitches me I do ask your journey how you got to this point how you figured out you know the product is different today to what it was on day one and how you figured out how you got to that point and I'm really looking to can I get some sense that you're actually a really strong decision maker and the other piece is tenacity I know we talk about grit that kind of thing a lot again It's quite hard to figure out when someone's pitching you whether someone really has that Mm -hmm. or not. Occasionally, you hear a founder story and you're like, okay, that person is just going to find a way to win no matter what. More often than not, you can't tell, I would say, actually, on the tenacity. It is really hard to tell, Um, but you do occasionally. But I think it's those three key skills. And then depending on the business, also founder market fit because there are some – some businesses that you do need very specific skills to be able Mm. to do and of course there are some businesses that almost anyone could do as long as they've got those three founder skills
0: brilliantly said i think the founder market fit is i think often underrated in some in some domains so let's let's talk about the kinds of startups and businesses that you'd like to invest in like what are some traits that they have um from from the lens of like b2b or b2c or um, verticals and things like that.
1: So, it's early stage digital tech. Early stage means pre Series A. My check size because my first check is just like fifty thousand pounds. If someone's coming to me at Series A, I'm going to be questioning why they're coming to me, uh, given what they ought to be raising. It's probably not a good sign. Um, I digital tech because really it's the area I understand. Plus, actually, the whole point of digital tech is it ought to be able to scale right. fast. If know if things are going well and that's why people like digital businesses right because they have that potential to you know 5x every month in theory right nothing's actually growing that fast for for very long but you know what I mean because actually all you need is more is more bandwidth Um, in terms of verticals I deliberately don't have verticals sometimes the most interesting things are only the things you hear once you've heard them in the founder's words. And so I actually have a reasonably unique process where the first pass is typically a Mm. video pitch because I want to hear it in someone's words. I'm not really that interested Mm. in the pitch deck. It's a reference material for me. Um, And so I've now forgotten what the other piece of the question was. There definitely was one, and I want to come back to it. I think
0: it it was basically the sort of the nature of businesses and startups that are appealing to you. And you said digital tech would be the broader umbrella.
1: Yeah, you said B2B or B2C. I think the answer is that I don't care. Uh, And I know a lot of people want to do B2B and and not B2C. And the reason I don't care is the underlying principles that you should be applying to this Mm. are the same. And it may be the case that those principles don't apply so often in B2C as they do in B2B. But what you're looking for is, you know, a business that is... Not too obvious, not a tar pit idea. If you're familiar with that, right? One which is so obvious that actually, what that means is there are either 20 people doing it or there's 100 people who've tried mm. and done it and failed, right? Anything too obvious probably fits into that category. So it's both not too obvious, but has a huge potential market and actually a plausible path to to get there at the at the same time. Um, and so you know, and I'm looking for things with a minimum, you know, 100x potential when I when I right. first invest, and actually one of the things that I've done recently that is slightly different is not just use that as a hurdle but go actually well if there's a 500 or it's a thousand or a 10,000 potential if everything goes right you know you have to wait that into your decision you have to go well yeah the valuation is a little bit higher on this one it's got another it's got ten times higher upside on it right so basically those things it's not those things aren't, aren't rocket science can you envisage a future where actually this product is that mm. big, right? Uh, plus, do you believe there's a plausible path there and this person is capable of navigating mm. that path? And if you've got those things, I don't really care whether it's B2B or B2C, right? It may well be that more things that have those features are B2B than B2C, but actually there's no theoretical reason why you should one have the one other. and right. not the other one.
0: I'm going to ask you a fun follow-up question. Um, let's take the last two decades, Mark. And I'm curious, as an investor, I'm sure you study a lot of the decks, I study a lot of the, you know, the paths to IPO for all these startups. If you could go back in time and pick three startups to invest in in the last 20 years, what would those three be?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And one that I've not really thought about. So, Give me a building public
0: answer. Um, <laughs> Think it out loud and answer.
1: Yeah, so I'll give you the building public answer to doing what I know now. And I'll give you the one that I think I might hmm. have missed. Um, so I think I, I've always been an Android person, actually, but I think Apple has just seen such a great business. And Steve Jobs had that vision to go, this is something, we're going to create something completely new. That whole thing that, that we were talking about, actually, before we were on the call, about understanding your customers, What have you, you've built things that your customers will want. And he had a vision of, what those customers will want, even though they didn't <laughs> exist yet. Um, the the one, and, and we spoke about Amazon, I think that's obviously right. been a fantastic business. The one that I think, of like the big, huge business, the one that I think I would have missed is Google. And the reason I think I would have missed it is the same reason that they felt they had to bring in like the Eric Schmidt uh, at one time. The adult which in the room, like, right? Yeah. The adult in the room, yeah, which is like, they were obviously great visionary guys, I'm not sure they had that sales skill or that idea of like, how are we going to turn this into a, I don't know whether they had that laser customer focus as much. They may have done. I just don't know those people back then, but it's more plausible to me that they didn't necessarily yeah, yeah, have that. I think have said a couple they of kind times of loved that, you
0: know, they, like, even in those early days, like there was a constant pushback against, we don't want to monetize Google. And Apparently Eric Schmidt was sweating every time he heard the words, like we don't want to monetize, we don't want to take ads. And he was like, Oh, but we have to make money. You know, Google's not a nonprofit. You know, so
1: I think that might well have made me miss it. Right? I might well have passed because, because of that. Because while they had a fantastic product, like they don't want to make any money. This doesn't seem like a good idea. Also, were the I so, think 28th,
0: uh, search engine or something? I think 18th or 28th search engine, which is crazy. So, which means they were like not the first. You know, to come out with the with the with the product.
1: Yeah. So that that I think. And, and so this is a subject that came up when I was discussing with another investor recently is sometimes and this is a really hard problem for investors where sometimes they say, for example, there's a, a business recently. They're like, I want to do B2C. Right. And you're like, I can tell B2B or at least I believe B2B would be a better path for this specific business. And say, let's say you pass and then like they pivot to B2B because they figure it <laughs> out as well. And you, and then they do incredibly well, and you were right. They shouldn't do B to C. They should do B to B. And you passed because they said they were going to go that. And it's like, well, okay, but I missed it. And I said, like, well, how do you manage that, right? Obviously, part of it is like investing good founders, but part of it is like, I don't, you don't know yeah. what's going to happen, what path those things are going to take. This is still something I'm thinking about, by the way. I do not know what the right answer to that to that question is or how to, to figure that piece out.
0: Especially in the pre-series A stage where it's even more tricky, right? Cause they haven't, pre-series A generally, you don't have a lot of revenue to go off of. You know, you have some signs of revenue accumulation, but you know, you just don't have a lot. It's not a growth stage investment. So you really have to still, like you said, take a shot on the founder again, hoping that they will they will listen to the market and pivot as needed and all that good stuff. Okay, so you told you, you shared with me Amazon Swan, uh, Google. You may have missed. What, what what's pick one more of, of one of the startups like your darling startups in the last twenty years that you you would have loved to invest.
1: A darling startup in the last twenty years that I would love to have invested
0: in. Um, I don't know, this is such. A, this is such. A I actually I, I don't think um, I have an answer for mine too. But, like, but I'm, while you give yours, I'm going to think of my. I was three. Say,
1: what's yours? I was yeah. Gonna- yeah, I was going to throw it back at you, but like, if you've asked this question, you must have you
0: must have thought about no, it yourself. That, that you would think, right? But I just, you know, I, as a podcaster, I love to. <laughs> okay, but um, my answer would be Airbnb for sure, um, Mark. Now, this is hypothetical, of course. I mean, we're not assuming that we would have gotten into Airbnb's cap table or whatever. I'm just saying hypothetically. I just love Brian Chesky's vision. I think he's um, very much has the Steve Jobs kind of design centric vision. I think Airbnb, um, also the the grit you talked about, where they sold these cereal boxes, you know, like they sold cereal for twenty thousand dollars. I think that just yeah. shows commitment and just creative thinking. Um, so yeah, Airbnb is in my top three. I would have loved number two. I don't know. It's a it's a tough one. I would have picked maybe like Webflow or one of the um, Webflow or, or Bubble because you know i I've come coming from the no code area for the last four or five years. And watching what they've done has been incredible. You know, I think Buffalo has been amazing, building community and things like that. Yeah, so here's,
1: I've thought of something, and I've actually got no idea how well they've done, whether it's been a successful yeah. business or it's or not. But I, as it's because I love the tool so much. Calendar. Yes, uh, and so I don't know how old it is, but I you love the You know what's the funny? They're from so Atlanta, much, where I, I live. Pay for it.
0: They're they're in the same city. And yeah, yeah.
1: I, mean, yeah. I, pay, I I pay for it, even though there's like an embedded free version in like your Google or your whatever because they're a bit rubbish. I still want to pay for it because they've yes. unbundled that, that service. And they produce something so good that you want to go use it. So I've got no idea whether they've exited or what, whether they've had a good outcome or not, but the product is just so, so good. good that once you use it, you just never yeah. want to go back. I
0: agree. I think um, this, you know my answer came to me just now is Figma. I would have chosen Figma as my number three because I think Figma is just again, um, I don't know if they went through the Adobe acquisition ten billion dollar acquisition that's a crazy exit but but back to calendly they i think the last I know the last sort of update I heard for, from from the internet is about three billion dollar i think growth stage round um valuation that they had recently and um I feel like they're marching their way to getting an i p o or maybe they'll get a fantastic exit I can't imagine like they're not I'm, i can't imagine I know that they're feeling a ton of inbound acquisition requests, right? From
1: yeah, oh, from really? like any okay. any big
0: cool. you know player, sales force or whoever. Yeah, well, that's good. But yeah, it's
1: a, I think I think another one I might have missed for exactly the same reason as before, because there was a sort of minor pivot. which I think is an Uber, right? Uh, which for and I appreciate for some of the later stage investors that didn't go so well, but for the early stage investors, still incredible. Because they were doing the limo service on day one, right? Which was like, I mean, it's not clear how scalable that is going to be, right? Or how big that can really be. And you're like, you might have quite rationally gone on day one. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work, right? And you'd have been right. (laughs) But then they obviously pivoted into something incredible. And so this is still a challenge, right? To figure out. And I think the bar does need to be higher if you don't. uh, This is my working... Theory at least is if they're not doing the thing today that you think is going to work, right? The bar does have to be a little bit higher on everything else. And you need to see that there's something adjacent that you think could work, right? So, you know, like Slack, for example, Slack's the very famous big pivot example, right? They were building a game, I think at first, and Slack was the internal console that they built. And you might have gone, I don't know anything about gaming right? It's hard to build games. I'm not getting involved in that. And then it turns into this like incredible business because they built all these other tools. Like there's definitely a certain amount yeah. of luck involved when you, obviously the founders had right. to be incredible, right? To do that, to build that thing in the first place. But you, you know, you can't invest just from the incredible right. founder when it's early You have to take some right. accounts of the, 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 of what the business the counter idea example is. Well.
0: Um... In the, in the peak 2020, it's, it's also sometimes you can't just invest on based on the paradigm shift. I mean, because Uber, I think the paradigm shift behind Uber was the fact that everybody had a GPS, uh, a cell, a smartphone in their hand in 2008, and suddenly GPS was a thing. You know, people were not using the, uh, the TomTom machines and all these things on the cars. Now they're like, navigation was done through the phone, so you know where your driver is, which I think was a paradigm shift on which this was built. And I mean, every time there's a paradigm shift, I think that opens up opportunities for some you know um, groundbreaking new companies. But with the same analogy, 2020, paradigm shift was everybody were going remote, pandemic, and then Clubhouse came into the scene. Again, incredible paradigm shift and also incredible founder, you know, but it didn't pan out in three years now where nobody's like using Clubhouse as much as they used in 2020. So it's like, that's why I feel like it's a... Um, Ten-year game. It's very hard to predict what might happen. You know,
1: you can't. You can learn as much as you like, but you can yeah. never know that yeah. something is is going to succeed, right? So, you, all you're trying to do when you're investing is go. I want the thing with the best possible distribution mm. of outcomes, and then what will be will be. Uh, and you really can't do that much about it, right? You can help when people want help, um, and but actually. You know, as an investor, largely, you put some money in and then in five or 10 years time, it comes back or it doesn't come back. and, And that's it. And I think it takes a certain mindset. I was talking to someone about this yesterday and they're like, I don't think I could do that. And I was like, well, for me, actually, it's a lot easier than I invest in something listed and then you sit there every moment. And that's what my whole career was before that was like things that not necessarily equities, but things where you could get live prices on them all the time. What well, the means is you had a little corner of your Excel spreadsheet with your like live P&L every moment of the day. And yes, you get used to it, but it's incredibly distracting. It doesn't matter how good you are, right? There's no way you can switch that off and go, well, I'm just not going to look at that today, right? You just, it's there the whole time. When you know, and you can get out, right? You can choose. I want to change my mind. I don't want right. to do that anymore. It's slightly different with something systematic, but you know what I mean. It's still there and it's a big distraction. Actually, one of the nice things about, venture for me is that actually do you know what Whatever I'm going to try and make as good decisions as I can today, I know it's going to be a long time before that works out or not and no matter how good my decision making is there's still an awful lot of variance on the outcome and you just have to kind of be comfortable with that and I think actually having come from a trading background and actually having played quite a bit of poker it's actually quite helpful to go do you know what keep doing the right things and in the long run yes you can go through periods of good and bad variance but actually if you keep doing the right things in the long run you'll get the right Hmm. outcomes plus a lot of variance of course okay so
0: i got the last question for you um which is sort of a a prompt that i want you to expand on something that i've read and i read out to you earlier Um, that I I read from Paul Graham's essay called What I Have Learned from Talking to Users. Um, He said something on the lines of, I recently told applicants to YC that the best advice I could give for getting in per word was the following. Explain what you've learned from users. Six words. I think it's a great way to assess uh, a founder at the pitch stage. You know, they're pitching you or trying to get funding from you. Uh, because it puts the focus on learning. What have you learned? And also the focus on talking to users, which I think is um, somehow a mysterious thing for a lot of early stage founders. I think they'd love to spend time with the product and the code or anything else, but to talk to users and face the truth. You know, So I thought that was fantastic. And first, I want to hear your reflection on that, your reaction to that. And second, I, I want to ask you what you would add to this list of questions that you would love you 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 use to assess um, great founders
1: so i think that is it's an excellent question because you need to know that you're solving a real problem and one that matters enough that people are gonna pay for it and enough people are gonna pay for it that you can create a great business and if you don't talk to your users you're just never gonna figure that out you have to get lucky if you don't (laughs) talk to your users right so um you talk to them the whole time, and maybe you're offering and so there's a business that I've invested in where I had the best answer for that, and it's not public yet that 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 round it will be very shortly but um the product they ended up with was so different from what they thought it was going to be on day one. it's solving the uh, the same, either the same problem or problem in the same in the same space because it's mission driven founders and they were really wanted to solve. But they were like, the product, and I was like, how did you get there? And the way they got there, the answers, I heard the best answers that I had ever heard. And it wasn't just them speaking to their users. It was the way they spoke to them, the right asking the right mm. questions. And they had then found a product, which was like, okay, people really want this. And so it's such an important question. I think another interesting question, someone actually gave this as an answer to me. So I have a cheat question that I use, which is... Um, what's the well, I use at the end of a pitch what's the one thing that I don't know that would be really helpful for me to know about your business right and it's kind of it's a cheat question because it's almost like I can't think of another question so I'm just going to put it back onto, onto you so that works for me a lot and I posted that this was my cheat question and someone came with a really good answer that they had a really good question they asked and their really good question was I can see your sort of revenue forecast what needs to happen for those revenue for what are all the things that need to happen for those revenue forecasts to become Mm. true right which is which I it wasn't quite those words but it was was a really interesting question because I think it then points that pointed back to me to like a lean startup methodology right and and the lean startup for those that don't know is like actually you say you're going to get to here today you're here there's a whole load of things that need to be Mm. true for you to get there you actually, it's helpful for you to know what all those things are, right? And so that question is built on on that thing. And actually the answers tell you whether the founders have actually thought Mm. about those things. So I thought that was a a really good question.
0: I love those, I love all the three. And you also touched on sort of um, earlier, the power of having a network of founders, Mark. Do you wanna expand on that a little bit? And I'm a big believer in that too. And I feel like um, a lot of what you're doing, what I'm doing, is kind of building virtual networks of, of you know, with founders and other like minded people by building in public. So why why is the network important?
1: So I think for founders there's there's just an awful lot of actual solved problems out there, right? What CRM should I use? What, you know, should I use Figma? The answer, you know, should I use Calendly? Should I use... And if you've never bu- if you've never built a business before, right? For you, I think, what was it you said? What yeah. podcast software was the one you used? You're like, well, I know what podcast. This is obviously better than all the other ones. Why would anyone use anything else? But people, there's so many things that if you're in, that are obvious. And there's just no need to reinvent the wheel, right? Obviously, you're going to have to beat your own path, right? And figure out a business that's unique, and find a way to get there and that is not easy at all. But don't make it any harder than it has to be when there are a lot of solved problems out there. And if you've got a network, you can ask those people and they will just basically give you the answer. So for instance, I'm I'm about to like try a newsletter. We'll see whether it gets any traction or not. But I wasn't sure which software to use and so I just did a post going, you know, I want to do a newsletter. I've got this specific problem that I'm trying to solve with it. What should I use? And you get like a load. It's great. Once you've got a network, just and you just post that on LinkedIn. And I got a load of replies and now I know what I'm going to use. Actually, they narrowed it down to two and then I made a decision. Right. But it was like super helpful. And it's the same thing once you've got a group of people you can ask. There's a whole load of things that you just don't need to figure out for yourself. Someone else will help you and people like helping. Right. And some of those things, they're literally, they're one word answers. Yeah, right. One word answers they are really easy. Uh, and you do not need to spend like an hour or two hours or three hours researching those things and still not being sure if you found the right answer. People like, to I,
0: I love that. And there's, there's tactical things that are like literally one word, two word answers, like what software is better for blogging or what tool would you use for podcasting? Things like that, which are like, you know, very, very easy. You can I can say that in my sleep, right? But then there's also strategic answers that you can attract by asking and being vulnerable in public, which is like, hey, I'm about to have a product hunt launch in a month. What are four things that I should think about today? And someone like me, for example, I did eighty-two launches on product hunt, so I'm like, this is in my sleep. I can do this. Like you know, it's like Jay Z. I can do this in my sleep. And so, but if the founder doesn't ask it or doesn't leverage their social media to go out there, put put themselves out there a little bit, you're never gonna attract um, strategic inputs from people and people who have done things, um, especially when they've overcome something difficult and then they've done it, they're so proud and happy to share. It's very hard to get a, get get a smart person to shut up because they've just done something awesome and they can't wait to, you know? So I think back to the initial point about building in public, I think being a big part of building in public to me has been Mark being vulnerable in public as well, not just building and saying I'm the expert but saying hey here's what i'm doing here's what i know here's what i don't know please help you know and I, my faith in humanity has always been restored every time i do that because there's always someone like you mark or someone like me out there who'd come and just give me the answer
1: i also find that actually if it's one where people want to answer those posts often get more traction than any that other too. post right? the can you can you help me with this normally at least on the comment side uh, and often on the views side they get more than See anything else
0: see i mean and also you turn, you know i think the other part about social media is i think a lot of people use social media as a broadcasting thing where it feels like you're on the stage and you're broadcasting down at them then when you have an open and vulnerable and like curious question like that it becomes more of a dialogue where everybody's chiming in you know and i feel i feel like it's more fun that way you know but but even for impressions and analytics too it's good for your algorithm so totally
1: i mean it's about The whole point, I think one of the points of building in public is it's not just a broadcast. It's like you're human, right? And there are things you're good at, and there are things you're probably not so good at. Don't be afraid to ask for help or admit that you're not good at those things and say, how do I get better at X? Right? So I did a post. like I find it hard to say no when people ask for help sometimes, right? And so I did a post on that, and people put some really useful stuff in. And sometimes you do just have, to, I like helping, but sometimes you yep. just have to say no because you have to manage your time effectively. It's not a thing I've historically been good at. And I got like loads of really helpful advice and I am better at saying no. And I apologize to anyone who's listening that I've said no to as a result of that, of that post. But um, yeah, just simple example, like I'm not good at that. Help me, how do I get better at it? And people came up with loads of super yeah. useful stuff.
0: Yeah, love that. I mean, on that high note, I would love to say thank you so much for being on the show, Mark. It's been such a pleasure. And I can't believe we, we're just, what, 55 minutes in? It feels like 20 seconds to me in my brain. So it's been such a breeze. Thank you for being here.
1: And thank you for having me, KP. I, I am really so looking this.
0: forward to your shout-out later on LinkedIn about the fact that we did the pod. And you have my full permission, of course, always. Um, thank you so much, and I'll uh, you know, stay in touch with you. Thanks, Mark.